Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Schechter. Recently, I had a conversation with a professor at UC Berkeley about the subject of power. In the course of the conversation, he referred to what he saw as the centers of people who exercised real power. He referenced great generals, political leaders, and Wall Street. Wall Street was once a reflection of American business. It served business, both large and small. Today, Wall Street and the business of finance is clearly its own power center, greater than and often in control of the whole of American and even global business. Wall Street has become the symbol of corporate greed, railed against by politicians, analyzed 24-7 on cable channels, and the focus of its own newspapers and its stars, people like Stephen Schwartzman gracing the covers of magazines. But how did this happen? How did Wall Street and the business of money become bigger, more powerful, and more important than the businesses it was originally there to serve? My guest today, Rana Faruhar, takes a look at this phenomenon in her new book, Makers and Takers. Rana Faruhar is a business columnist at Time Magazine and CNN's Global Economic Analyst. She's an economic and political contributor to New York's WNYC and a frequent commentator on both radio and television. It is my pleasure to welcome Rana Faruhar here to talk about Makers and Takers, the rise of finance and the fall of American business. Rana, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. How much and to what degree did the financialization of, of Wall Street and of our, our economy, as you talk about in Makers and Takers, to what extent was that part of globalization and the changing global landscape with manufacturing moving offshore, the service sector becoming more important, and the ability for money to flow freely anywhere in the world? Well, it's very much a part of that trend. And, you know, I see it as separate but interlinked. I think the financialization, the rise of the financial sector in power and scale and scope goes along with globalization and along with technological development and tech-related job destruction and evolution. And the three trends interact in very subtle ways, and they often strengthen each other. So just for example, you know, one of the things I point to in my book is the deregulation of interest rates in 1980, which allowed large amounts of foreign capital to flow into the U.S., which actually helped the financial markets sort of cook up some of these exotic financial products that then later came back to bite us, um, most recently in the 2008 financial crisis. Um, you got the markets becoming uh, an end rather than a means to prosperity. You got a shift in the banking model, in part because of that flood of capital, um, that made trading and speculation much more important than plain vanilla lending. So all of these things are definitely interlinked. The other thing that we've seen in all of this is this kind of disconnect at times between the economy and the fundamentals of the economy and how Wall Street and the markets interact and react to that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, one of the things that's happened in the last eight years is that you've seen the Federal Reserve, the Central Bank of the U.S., pour $4 trillion into the marketplace. That's led to record stock prices, but it means that we're still in the longest, slowest uh, recovery of the post-war era because one of the reasons they did that money dump is that there wasn't any real fiscal, serious fiscal policy and planning being taken because of congressional gridlock. Now, what happens on the ground eventually does connect to what happens on Main Street, um, and I think that we're actually due for a correction because it, we're at the very end of that very financialized kind of growth that's market, market-led. Also, the degree to which 
public companies have been so beholden to shareholders and have been so engaged in, in buying back stock and essentially in the money business even more than the R&D business, as you talk about, that's contributed to this as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's been a national mythology that's been created over the last 40 years, I would say, that finance is the very top of the economic pyramid, that financial engineering is actually a substitute for real engineering. So that's why you see some of the largest and most profitable companies in America, many of them large California-based tech companies, storing a lot of cash overseas and yet borrowing the same amount of cash at home in order to pay back investors, not to invest in new factories here or train workers or pay higher salaries in the U.S., but to pay back investors because what does that do? A, it makes your share holder base happy uh, and companies are now run for the, simply you know legally in some cases for the, the, the benefit of the shareholder rather than anybody else it also artificially inflates your share price which makes everyone happy in the short term but again it doesn't change what happens on the ground and you can see that actually with Apple recently um, having done billions and billions of dollars of share buybacks uh, over the last few years, but then the, mil- the minute that there's bad news in China, Carl Icahn, who was one of the activist investors pushing for those, dumps the stock and it goes back down. I mean, Warren Buffett since bought it, but this, this tells you the volatility uh, of this kind of growth. It's very different than real, organic, mainstream growth. And it creates what you talk about as a kind of closed loop of existing assets. That's right. I mean, one of the killer stats in my book is the fact that uh, today, 15%, only 15% of all the money in financial institutions in the U.S. actually goes into business investment. So where's it going? Well, it's being used to trade up stocks and bonds and uh, other assets like houses. It's being used to create these asset bubbles that make people feel wealthier on paper, but again, don't really create new businesses and innovations at a grassroots level, which is, I believe, the only thing that can create real sustainable growth and prosperity. The fact that so much money has gone into real estate, what impact has that had? So it's very interesting. If you look since the 1980s onward, the amount of money that banks are putting into businesses, new business ventures versus uh, consumer real estate has flipped. And real estate is a highly, highly financialized um, venture. I mean, it runs on debt. uh, And in fact, that's another topic I cover in my book. Debt is really the lifeblood of finance. That's where finance makes its money. And so it's no accident that as finance has grown since the 1980s and just about doubled in size, you've had people taking on more and more debt, some of that to buy houses. We saw how that uh, backfired in 2008 in the run-up to the subprime crisis. Um, but this is very much a part of this dysfunctional model. Housing is an incredibly financialized industry, and it's really bifurcated. I mean, if you look at the housing recovery over the last eight years, 60% of the gains have been concentrated in just 10 markets. So it just shows you this sort of perverse system created by the rise of finance and all this debt that it brings with it. When we look at that bifurcation, there is something that appears absolutely unsustainable in that in terms of the larger economy. I, I think so. And it's interesting because a lot of smart investors are talking about how we're probably at a tipping point now. You know, we've had basically um, a 40-year bull market, you know, with some exceptions, but, but the stocks have been pretty much going up since the late 1970s. We're in for a shift now. A lot of people believe that we may be in for a period of earnings growth and stock growth that is much lower over the next three or four decades, in part because we haven't been doing that um, seed corn investing in real technology, real R&D, real innovations. If you look actually at the rise of finance since the 80s, 
you can see a fall off not only in R&D spending, but in the number of new businesses being created and in the number of businesses that are going public. And in fact, a lot of businesses today don't want to go public because they just don't want the pressure from the public market. The other thing that is going on as a subset of that, or I guess as a corollary of that, is as there is more R&D occasionally in tech, and as we see more creative destruction, that the impact of that is to create stagnant wages at best and lower less jobs beyond that. Well, it's interesting. One of the big conundrums in the uh, economy right now is that productivity is flat. So economic growth is basically demographics plus productivity. Well, demographics are not that great anywhere in, in the developed world. U.S. is sort of okay, but productivity is flat. And you would think that all the new technology out there, we all have it in our pocket, you know, we use it every day. You'd think that it would be bolstering productivity, but it's not yet. Now, there's a number of reasons why this might be, but one of the things that's been talked about is the fact that um, this generation of tech companies is creating many fewer jobs by market cap than the previous generation. If you look at, say, a WhatsApp uh, or an Uber versus uh, an Apple or a Microsoft or an IBM, certainly, they create many fewer jobs. And so this huge bubble of wealth is shared by many fewer people. Also, some of the products that have been created out of tech, some of the creative destruction that we've seen that we admire in many cases has resulted in businesses that operate with fewer people. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, as I say, the the trends of financialization, globalization, and tech-related job destruction um, sort of funnel around each other and often create a snowball cycle, which then results in what you see now, which is the top 1% of the population taking a larger share of the pie than ever before and the 90% stagnating. What role has the tax code played in all of this? Well, our tax code rewards debt, all kinds of debt. Um, It allows companies to write off debt on their taxes. It it allows all of us to write off the mortgage interest deduction, for example, and buy more house than we might ordinarily afford, which, of course, then creates a self-fulfilling cycle because house prices go up and then you need more to borrow to buy a house and so on and so forth. So I think that if we actually tweak the tax code to favor equity and savings more than debt, that would be a good place to start with this problem. When we look back at how we got to all of this, can we identify a particular tipping point or two that got us here? And is there anything to be learned or gained in understanding that? Yeah, I think that there's a few. So interestingly, you know, um, Republicans, and in particular the Reagan era, often gets blamed um, when we look at the rise of finance, and definitely the 80s, the the go-go 80s, the deregulation that happened under Reagan, the um, allowance for large mergers and acquisitions uh, are a big part of this. But the problem really began before. I would argue it began in the 1970s when growth in the U.S. began slowing, and policymakers didn't really want to do the hard things that it would take to bolster it at a national level, you know, invest in education, revamp in infrastructure, all those things that we know about. They're hard, they're expensive, they're politically contentious, and they take time. So instead, um, both Democrats and Republicans sort of threw the ball to the markets and said, the markets will fix things, the markets will create wealth. And the markets did create a certain kind of wealth, a very financialized wealth that benefits mostly the top 10% of the population that owns 80% of stocks. Um, This has continued, by the way, through administrations on both sides of the political aisle. So Reagan was definitely a part of this, but so was Bill Clinton. There was deregulation of derivatives under Clinton. There were changes in uh, the way corporate compensation got paid out that allowed for the boom in stock options, which, of course, fuels this buyback trend we were talking about earlier. 
So in many ways, both parties um, and, you know, each political administration has been a part of this 40-year shift in sort of Copernican reorientation of the economy towards the financial markets. One of the points you make in that context is that there are really no villains to this story in a broader context, that everybody's been just doing what they have been incentivized to do, given the way the system has worked. I, I really believe that. You know, I mean, I think that one of the hard things about the post-2008 debate is that there was so much finger-pointing, and, and there was understandably a lot of anger. You know, nobody went to jail. You know, maybe some people should have, but the truth is that it's not just the too-big-to-fail banks that are the problem, and really that's a small part of the iceberg. We have a public pension system that actually supports this problem. Um, all of our 401k money is invested in a way that um, supports an asset management business that charges fees that eat up 30 to 60 percent of our nest egg. We have housing policy that's skewed. We have a tax code that's skewed. We have a system of campaign finance that leaves uh, the financial institutions being amongst the largest lobbyers to Washington every year. So it's really an ecosystem. And one of the points of my book was to try and connect up the dots of that ecosystem so that we could start really thinking about this in a more subtle and sophisticated way and coming up with the right solutions. And given that it's taken 40 years roughly to get us to this point, it's not something that there's a silver bullet to correct. That's right. And that's something, it's interesting to watch in the political season this year that, uh, you know, each candidate has their prescription. So Hillary Clinton wants to work to strengthen the existing financial regulation. Bernie wants to break up the big banks. Trump's saying we should tax hedge funders more. But each of those things is just a sliver of this larger pie, which is that the system of market capitalism, as Adam Smith envisioned it, which is a system that takes all of our savings, puts it in banks, and then the banks lend that money out to businesses so they can grow the economy, that system itself is broken. One of the ways it's broken, and one of the things you point out, is that particularly with public companies, that when companies go public, the amount of money that they spend on R&D, for example, drops precipitously. It does. And, you know, that's understandable in some ways because they get punished for that in the market. So if you look a few years back in the mid-2000s, Microsoft was trying to orchestrate a turnaround, and they did some big, big R&D investments. Uh, I believe they announced them around 2006. Share price immediately fell. didn't matter that this was a good thing for the long-run success of the company. The shareholders wanted quarterly profits, and they punished the company for making that decision. Um, a, A little while later, they announced big buybacks, which have nothing to do with actually supporting the growth of the company in a real sense, and the stock price goes up. So it's, it's really easy to see how CEOs, who, by the way, have a shelf life of about three years and will be tossed out if they don't um, jack up the share price every quarter, it's easy to see why it's hard for them to take those long-term decisions and why R&D has been falling as uh, financialization has been growing. What do we learn from the individuals, and there are a few that have tried to run counter to this, domestically, people like Howard Schultz and Jeff Bezos and people mm-hmm, like Jack mm-hmm. Ma? Yeah, absolutely. So there are some leaders, and they tend to be founder CEOs that have um, a certain cult of personality around them, a certain power. Often they still hold large stakes in their own businesses um, that can just say, look, I'm going to take these investments. Uh, If you like it, great. If you don't, sell the stock. And, you know, generally you have to be very profitable first in order to do that. Um, You have to be large. Uh, and you have to be, have a lot of courage and be willing to really, you know, risk the idea that um, the markets may punish you. I think founders uh, are more willing to do that. Although it's interesting, there are some emerging market companies. You mentioned Alibaba, and 
they have had a um, uh, explicit mandate to put workers first, customers second, and shareholders third, which is kind of a way of saying, hey, this company exists in a larger ecosystem. It's not just about the stock price. It's about are we growing things in a sustainable way. And, and you know, this is particularly important in America because we have an economy that is 70% consumer spending. So if you don't grow businesses that actually support local, local ecosystems and raise wages, eventually, you know, nobody can buy your lattes or your widgets. <laughs> it just doesn't work. Beyond the tax code, which we touched on, what else has to happen in your view or begin to happen in the realm of public policy to start to address this? Well, I think that we definitely need to tackle campaign finance reform. I mean, it's at the heart of so many problems. And you look at things like uh, the way in which the 2014 budget bill was held hostage to financiers who wanted to roll back some of the Dodd-Frank regulation. I mean, they were allowed to do that, and we couldn't get a budget bill passed until that, that loophole was put in. I mean, this is craziness. Um, so we really need to address that problem. Aside from that, though, I think we need to think about simplification of the financial system. You know, I mean, there's the simple questions are really the best ones. Oftentimes, financiers and policymakers like to speak in very complicated terms about very subtle points, uh, acronyms, how much capital down to a tenth of a, um, a point that institutions should be holding against risk. But the truth is, the best questions are the simple ones. Are our financial institutions, is the financial system doing something measurably good for the real economy? And unfortunately, all too often, the answer is no. Do we need to do something about stock buybacks? There was a time, we forget, there was a time when stock buybacks were considered manipulation. They were illegal. Yeah, it's it's incredible to me, actually. This is one of the most amazing things, excuse me, that something that was illegal uh, pre-1982, was actually considered market manipulation, is now business as usual. So we have had two back-to-back uh, -back record years for stock buybacks. And by the way, buybacks tend to happen at the top of the market, which is just another reason they're crazy, because... If you're really buying back your stock because you think it's going to go up, you should be buying at the bottom or at the, at the beginning of a recovery cycle rather than at the top. The fact that companies buy them at the top shows me that they're, look, they're, they're looking desperately for any way to just pump up their share prices. Looking at this from a psychological perspective, I suppose, what's going to happen in your view as a result of the villainization of Wall Street that we are hearing in this political campaign that seems to have taken hold in large swatches of the country? How is that going to play out on Wall Street? And will that impact be positive or negative? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. So I think that my book and this process of financialization over the last 40 years actually goes a long way towards explaining why we're in such an extreme political season. You know, you've got outsiders on both the far left and the far right um, just totally upending all the predictions, and you've got a more establishment politician like Hillary Clinton having a hard time getting as much traction as people would have thought she'd have had by this point in the cycle. So why is that? Well, I think it's because people have lost trust in the way the system works. There was an interesting Harvard study done recently that uh, said only 18% of millennials actually characterize themselves as capitalists. 
um, and only 30% of those 30 and up do, which shows you that this is not a fringe thing. This is not just about feeling the burn. This is a majority of Americans that are really questioning our status quo economic system, and that leads to extreme politics. If people don't feel included, if they don't feel that they have a stake in the process and that it's working for them, you will see more and more populism and extreme politics. Will we see, though, an extreme reaction on the Wall Street side where all of these people that have been making so much money for so long suddenly see their world threatened and, and take extreme actions in response? So that's, that's an interesting question, too. Um, one of the things that has actually surprised me as I've put this book out um, into the world, I haven't gotten calls so much from you know, Fortune 500 CEOs as I have from financiers themselves. And they're interested in the thesis and, and what I'm saying about too much finance slowing growth because ultimately they care about their portfolios. And as I said, many people believe we're going into a period of low returns. So financiers are thinking, okay, huh, what's going on in the economy? that is such a headwind to growth. They want to understand this. And some of them, some parts of the industry actually are taking some interesting actions that could potentially be positive. So large asset managers like uh, BlackRock, for example, but also large sovereign wealth funds um, around the world are starting to say, hey, we've got this big pool of cash that gives us power. How can we invest it? Where can we put this money uh, that might do some social good and, and some economic good? And so we're starting to see um, finance itself realize that financialized growth has tapped out and we should all start thinking about the real kind. One of the remarkable things is how much cash there is out there. I mean, the world oh, is Lord, awash yeah. in it. It's incredible. I mean, you know, it, it, over $2 trillion sitting in, in bank accounts, much of it overseas. Um, and this goes to the fact that companies have a larger share of the overall wealth pie today than ever before, in part because of the process of financialization. The public sector is beleaguered. Uh, consumers are still struggling with flat wages. But companies, um, and in particular financialized companies, have more than ever before. Rana Faruhar, her book is Makers and Takers, The Rise of Finance and the Fall of American Business. Rana, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you for having me. Thank you.